You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. And today on the show, we have Nadine Pequeniza, who's a multi-threat filmmaker. She's a producer, a director, a writer. Nadine's won uh, multiple TV and film awards, including a, a Canadian Screen Award for Best Writing in a Documentary Program. She's had numerous Canadian Screen Award and Gemini nominations. And Nadine's films, which all or mostly tend to feature a strong sort of social justice theme. Been shown at many of the world's largest international film festivals. So Nadine, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on. Hi, David. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And Nadine, you've done a, a really fascinating and I think a, an excellent job of telling the stories around social impact bonds, the documentary Invisible Heart. Maybe off the start, can you give everybody a bit of a introduction to the, the documentary and what story you're telling there? Sure. Well, as you said, I mean, I've done mostly social issue documentaries is what I've tended to focus on over the past 20 years. And what draw my or what drew my attention to social impact bonds was um, this idea because social impact bonds tend to address a lot of the issues that I uh, document in my films. I was really attracted or interested in the idea that they would focus uh, investment on early intervention. Uh, and so, try to deal with some of these problems at the onset. Because what I was finding in my films is that oftentimes the people who rely on social programs, help is getting to them too little and too late. And so whether I was doing documentaries on young people involved with the criminal justice system or child welfare or addiction or homelessness, I often found that you know the, the programs that they needed weren't available to them when they needed them. So that's what attracted me to social impact bonds. And the film, the way I structured it is I, you know, the life cycle of a sieve is very long. Um, and so I chose to focus on two social impact bonds that were in the different phases of, of development and implementation. And so one of the bonds that we look at is uh, the Ontario government was looking to launch its first social impact bond. Uh, four and a half years later from when we started filming, that still hasn't happened, but it's about to happen. So the film chronicles that process through the eyes of a nonprofit, Mainstay Housing here in Toronto, and the bond is focusing on chronically homeless um, and trying to get them into permanent tenancy. So that's one of the storylines that we follow. And then the other one has to do with a Chicago social impact bond focusing on pre-K or early childhood education. And so that bond was in the process of implementation. Uh, I started filming when the second cohort was entering preschool. And the bond itself was for $17 million. It was for 2,600 preschoolers to attend uh, school over the course of three years, so three cohorts. And there were three payment triggers involved, which we can get into later if you like. But um, the investors there were Goldman Sachs, uh, the J.B. Pritzker Family Foundation, and also Northern Trust. 
And what interested me about that bond in particular is that the uh, lifespan of the bond, because the repayments um, would continue to be made over 18 years. So at the time that I started filming in 2015, there had not been a bond um, that was so long-term. And then I was also interested in Goldman Sachs because out of all the investors that are active in this field, um, they're, I would say, the most unusual uh, because most of them are philanthropic investors, but here's a commercial investor with quite a reputation. Um, and they're not just involved, they're invested in quite a few SIBs at the time that I was filming for, um, and it had been behind the very first social impact bond in the United States. So that's why I focused on those. And then the other element of the film is I'm following Sir Ronald Cohen, um, who was involved in designing and developing, launching the very first SIM in the world in Peterborough, UK. And um, we followed him in Toronto, London, and Washington as he was promoting this idea to different um, practitioners, government people, investors around the world. So I'm going to get you in a minute to maybe, in your words, uh, dis- describe what a SIB is at its heart, a social impact bond. I think the listeners of this podcast probably have a range of backgrounds and familiarity with this space. But you know, speaking of uh, Sir Ronald Cohen, I think the documentary opens with a monologue of his. And I, I think that was from the, the Skoll Forum in 2014. Is that right? Do I have my place in that right? Yeah, yeah, it's good memory. The part um, of it is from that and part of it from other speeches he's made, yes. Okay, so if, if you'll indulge me, I'm, I'd just like to read that because I, I actually typed it out as I was listening because it it's a pretty powerful statement. I think it introduces the kind of at its heart to Sib trying to do. Um, and then if you can sort of you know, go into the explanation of how a Sib tries to accomplish this. But uh, so the, the documentary opens with, uh, and I'm not going to do this justice, he has a much more much more gravitas in his voice when he says this, but uh, yeah, we've been searching for many years now for the way to bring, bring about a revolution. We need a revolution in the way we tackle social issues. If we don't find more effective ways of tackling them, not only are we going to find ourselves living with social division and violence, but we're going to live in a deeply unfair society. The linking of social performance and a financial return is what we've been looking for. It is the key to the revolution. It is the key to the capital markets. We've heard a lot about the invisible hand of the markets. Let us bring the invisible heart of the markets to help those whom the invisible hand has left behind. So maybe talk a little bit about that. How does SIBS relate to this sort of grand statement from Sir Ronald Cohen? So I'll explain the boring part of how the mechanics of how a SIB works sure. after that very eloquent explanation um, from Sir Ronald Cohen. So essentially, I mean, what he's talking about there is bringing a third dimension to investing, and that is impact, that we measure impact when we both pay returns and help to direct capital to investments that return a social um, good. And so fundamentally how it works, the mechanics is an investor pays upfront for the delivery of a social program. And if that program meets predetermined targets or success metrics, then the government repays the investor their capital plus a return on their investment. 
And typically what we've seen around the world since they began in 2010, um, the rate of returns have fell within the range of 8 to 12% typically, but the full range, the lowest I've seen is 1.3 and the highest 22. So there's quite a range. And because it is a new market, there's not a lot of comparables. So, but that's, those are the mechanics of a social impact bond. And so from where you've sort of set, what do you, how do you think this sort of ties into that kind of opening statement there? I mean, this is talking about rebel. These are very grand terms. I admit I I sort of get chills when I think about that. I think there's a lot of promise and, and that resonates with me, that opening monologue. But I think what your film points out, there's a lot of details that are, uh, you know, yet to, yet to be worked out and we're struggling through, but link the sort of social impact bond to this, this big, broad, big, bold sort of proclamation around revolution. Yeah. Well, the reason I opened with that be, was because the intent of the film was to look at all of the promises of SIBs and then relate that to the real world. So theory versus practice. And so there are a few fundamental promises when SIBs were first introduced in 2010. And it's interesting that has changed over time. But initially, when I started the film, the promise of innovation uh, was very present, that by having capital investors and a financial return linked to the delivery of a social program, that you would drive innovation uh, in the social impact space. And the second promise that we heard a lot about was the idea that there would be cost savings, that this would be a cheaper way to deliver social programs because only effective programs and early intervention programs would be targeted. So costs that develop or are accrued by government later, things like multiple uh, emergency room visits by homeless people or the use of shelters or housing prisoners, things that you could avoid if you could do things like reduce uh, prisoner recidivism or reduce the number of homeless or foster care is another example that, that was very clear, you know, keeping children out of foster care and with their families is a lot cheaper for the state. So the idea was that those cost savings is what would create uh, the ability for government to pay returns to investors and still deliver the program more cheaply. So that was another promise that we looked uh, to investigate in the film. And the third, I would say, is the idea that Social programs are delivered in a way that's very um, inco not cohesive, so it's siloed. There's a number of different organizations, whether they be government or nonprofit, that are delivering bits and pieces of different programs. But really what it, we need is a more cohesive approach, and that by having a social impact bond, you could bring all of these different program delivery services together and deliver it as one service, which the first SIB showed very well would be possible. You know, their program was actually called One Service, and it was to reduce recidivism, and they brought um, service delivery uh, agencies that were dealing with addiction and, and family issues and housing and employability, so employment training skills, all of these different resources that uh, ex-offender might need to help reintegrate into society, they brought them together under one roof. And so these are sort of, when you talk about Sir Ronald Cohen's 
description of a sieve and what they were hoping to achieve, this idea of better outcomes for people. These are sort of the three main tenets or promises of SIBs that would hopefully deliver that over the long term. So that's what I set out to explore in the film, whether or not SIBs were effectively doing that when they moved from theory to practice. That's really um, interesting. And just to recap, so the, those three things, we're delivering potentially more cohesive social programs, um, cost savings, and the first point again? Innovation. Innovation, right. Um, did, did, did you get the sense through any of this, any of the arguments that just bringing new sources of a much larger pool of capital to the table to en enable these types of interventions and programs was part of the promise uh, of SIBs so that when you're tying the kind of return aspect and you get, you know, Goldman Sachs coming to the table and the private sector now coming to the table and putting the money up to be able, you know, to fund these types of problems that, that, that these programs, sorry, that that's part of the, the, the promise here. Yes, no, absolutely. That was another part of the promise that there would be more capital to deal with these problems and not just more capital, but, but more capital to deal with early intervention because the argument was government just doesn't have the resources. They're too busy dealing with crisis, you know, things at the end of the line. Someone who's been homeless for 15 years as opposed to a youth who's at risk of becoming homeless. So rather than stopping the problem, they're too busy trying to clean up the mess. Mm -hmm. So the idea with social impact bonds is that all of this new capital would be available to stop the problem before it started therefore freeing up government resources so they could reallocate to have a system that was more focused on prevention. Okay. So I'm going to, you're going to notice I'll probably stop a few times as we go through and just reiterate things. I feel like this space took me a while to get my head around. I think it's fairly complex. There's terms that maybe not everybody's familiar with. Um, so in, indulge me if you will. You're just essentially shifting the risk from, you know, a, a traditional funder, which might be a government, to, to provide these this, this funding to these um, charities or nonprofits that are doing this work. And instead, the investors taking the risk on putting up the upfront capital. If it's successful, they get a return. If not, they don't. And um, and it's essentially a way to bring new capital to the table and all the other things that you've highlighted. Is that? I don't know if I've made that simpler or more complicated. No, I think examples are always much better um, for people to wrap their heads around things. I mean, when I've been explaining this project to people in the course of making it, the most difficult part for people to understand was profit. How do you make a profit off of helping a homeless person, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the only real answer to that or the, the way they most easily grasped it is when I would explain, well, it's the expected things that the government is using to repay the investor uh, their return. And so this idea of risk that you spoke about is important to the concept of a SIB. You know, in order for the model to function, the investor does have to take on risk. And that goes hand in hand with innovation, what we were speaking about earlier, social innovation. And unfortunately, what I saw in making the film and in doing the research around the uh, different social impact bonds, so beyond the ones that were profiled in the film, is that most of the social impact bonds we've seen to date do not take on risk. And that investors are usually backing programs that have 
several years, if not decades, of data behind them already uh, to prove that they are successful programs and worthy of funding. And so I see this as one of the biggest um, failures of SIBs, really. So there's there's a whole so I, I'm gonna I'll just relay a bit of a story because the way I'm but by way of background one of my hats is I um, head up the kind of social financer team at World Vision Canada I've been involved uh, in our organization at different stages is involved in a variety of uh, dibs so development impact bonds at various stages um, and so one of the the context I'm usually talking about trying to explain the structure is in a development context. So one, you know, sort of hypothetical uh, example I give to try to explain that is to say, you know, imagine a scenario where World Vision says that, hey, if we work in uh, approaches the South African government and says, hey, if we work in these communities, we can help produce HIV AIDS um, in your country. If we're successful, you know, we're going to, that's going to lead to X dollars of cost savings to the government from the reduced demands on the healthcare system and, you know, increased productivity of the people. Um, and if we, you know, that's going to cost X million dollars and the South African government says, great, but A, how do we know you're going to actually be successful and achieve those results? And B, we got a lot of priorities and a limited amount of money. So, and we say, okay, well, what if we bring an investor to the table who fronts the money they pay us to implement this if they were successful? We pay them back. If not, you know, you're not paying a thing and you pay for that for the cost from the cost savings. And, and that all sounds like when you explain that to people, it's just like immediately like, oh, wow, wonderful. That's brilliant. Why? Yeah. Why haven't we been doing this for longer? And then once you start to, okay, but now we got to get into the details and there's a lot of logistics and issues, really thorny issues that need to be worked through. And so you're bringing up, I think, a couple of those issues. So maybe let's start to talk mm -hmm. about some of those things. I mean... I, I, and just Can to, I just, I'll just yeah, jump in, David, please. just to finish that thought, the example you gave. The problem is the government doesn't want to invest unless they see some data that the program's going to work. And you know what? Neither does the investor. investor. Yeah. And so the problem is when you take it to market, these deals get constructed in such a way that, one, there's a lot of data behind the program, and two, the metrics that get set, the success metrics are achievable. Yeah. You know, otherwise, no investor is going to put their money behind it. Yeah, and I think I th I think that's right. I, I mean, especially in the early days. I mean, what, you know, one not counter argument, but I think just an, a, an additional kind of nuance or wrinkle to consider is that I think in the early days, I think there's a lot of pressure and a lot of pressure. Everyone wants this to work. They want it to be a tool that could be used to bring additional capital to solve problems. And so if you set up a dib in, or SIB in the early days and it, it is too difficult to achieve those metrics and they fail, we're gonna, it's going to die before this model ever has a chance to see the light of day. And so even if, even if it's not a, a case of you know, a ruthless financier coming in and wanting to extract maximum profit and you've got well-intentioned organizations all around the table, the pressure is we want these things, we want to prove the model out and so we're going to set those. And the argument is potentially over time, we get better at this. People get more comfortable with it and decide to take on more risk. I do think for what it's worth that your point still stands. That depends a lot on the investor at the table mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, what demands they have and what ex return expectations they have and how much they're, they're doing it for the purpose versus the profit. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I think, it is a new market, as you said, and so there aren't really best practices yet out there. 
And I know in a lot of the conferences that they're having around the world about impact investing, this is a main topic of conversation, you know. And if you compare the UK with the United States, the idea of uh, evaluating the success of a program, the approaches are very different. In the U- in the US, there's a lot of there's a lot of emphasis on you know control trials or tests, um, the third party evaluation. Where in the UK, it's become much more um, subjective, if you will, in terms of looking at how to evaluate success. And the need to show programs that are successful, I mean, I don't know if you've been following the DIB that just reported in India that was about getting more uh, girls into education, improving their outcomes. The first success rate that they reported was 160%. And so when you start to see numbers like that, I think it devalues the effort. You know, if you're having a 160% success rate, it makes me question how much did you really understand the problem to begin with? Mm -hmm. You know, what targets did you set and how are you evaluating this? So I think there's a lot of work to be done in the industry about, you know, if we are going to continue down this path, how are we evaluating things? How are we setting these metrics? And the point you brought about, about what type of investor, I think is a very important consideration. You know, we've been doing these panel discussions across the country, so special event screenings, and having different Canadian actors who are involved in this market uh, participate in a discussion afterward with the audience. And the McConnell Foundation is one of the um, supporters or the backers of our uh screening uh, tour. And so Stephen Hutter, the CEO, was um, on the panel at our Winnipeg screening. And, you know, he was saying some very interesting things about, you know, how for the past four years, they've been providing grants um, to different Indigenous groups to try and come up with truly innovative programs about how to address uh, some of the problems around child welfare that afflict the Indigenous community. And so it's through the granting process that he's actually, or that the McConnell Foundation has been supporting innovation, not through the kind of uh, investor risk scenario that is promoted by social impact bonds. Now, out of that four years of research, they're hoping that one of the projects that was developed, one of the programs, will be funded in a social impact bond. So um, who knows uh, how truly revolutionary it is. It's it's interesting because as I went around the country listening to people talk, I mean, Paul Lassert, um, uh, part of Raven Capital, another indigenous um, organization that's been involved in social impact bonds, he was telling us about a program that he and um, the Friends Society had uh, engineered or actually researched and piloted in three different communities that was all based on keeping Indigenous children out of the child welfare system by relying on the teaching of elders and having them work with the family uh, and passing on those traditions to help keep the kids and the family together. And 
they tested it, three different communities. They had great results. You know, they spent two years gathering this data. They brought it to government. They got nowhere in terms of funding. The minute they had a private investor interested in fronting the money, then they had the attention of the government. Mm -hmm. And so, and I heard, you know, the same thing from other nonprofits or uh, service delivery organizations talking about all of the research. I mean, Mainstay had been collecting data for years on its homeless program. There's another woman, um, the Calgary Counseling Center, uh, Robbie Babbins-Wagner, the CEO of that organization, collecting data for 14 years. And all of the proof that they're bringing to government to say, look, these programs work. We're having great success with these programs has not resulted in more money. And so why the government all of a sudden gets interested when there's a private investor who finds this research interesting, then the government will not only pay for the program, but they're willing to pay additional money in terms of a profit. So it just, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. And I think that can feel frustrating. I think it is frustrating. Um, I think one of, if I'm guessing at one potential reason that that might happen is I, I know that based on from the limited experience I've had with uh, government agencies, there is a lot of talk right now about how the government uses its capital to you know, catalytic capital, right? How do we use our capital to get private sector capital to the table? Because we've got this we keep hearing about this, these, you know, it's a variety of numbers depending on what estimate you use, but this sort of three to nine trillion dollar spending gap to achieve the SDGs, annual spending gap to achieve the SDGs by 2030. And so that is on the minds of a lot of people right now across all across the space. And so that may be why they're getting a little more, well, now we've got an investor kind of at the table, it becomes more appealing. I, that said, I'm sure that doesn't explain all of it. I'm sure it's still incredibly frustrating. I, anyway, I think there's a whole bunch of other issues uh, also at play with these SIBs that um, I'd like to maybe address some of those things, like the, the type of investor who's at the table. I think about McConnell Foundation. I have a huge amount of respect for the work that they're doing. It's, uh, the whole team over there and Stephen, I think, is amazing. And so I look at that and say, when you've got an investor like that at the table, you feel a lot better that they're in the negotiation and that, that they want to see genuinely a good outcome. And that's their whole purpose for existing and just what I know of that, that culture. And I, there are other organizations like that. Um, I, I wonder whether that's part of the way SIBs could be evolved. I mean, it, it does seem to me a little strange. So a couple things. One is, do you potentially limit who can, and who can be an investor, who should be an investor in these SIBs? That would then sort of defeat a bit of the purpose of catalyzing private sector capital. Mm -hmm. um, but the other, the other issue is maybe the investor shouldn't be at the table. I mean, I don't, in most of the rest of the financial markets, Goldman Sachs doesn't bring to the table, you know, it creates a bunch of financial products that they think the market will buy and then they sell it. Um, now, I think there are times with its largest clients, they would certainly bring them to the table and potentially create a bespoke instrument for them. But in a lot of cases, no, the, they create products that they think the market will find appealing and they, they give, hey, here's the return we can pay at this risk, you know, and that has this type of risk profile and the market can buy it or, or not. Um, and so removing the investor from that equation starts to now take the pressure off of the service provider and the funder to say like, hey, this is what we think is achievable. 
and realistic without mm-hmm. the sort of demands of, well, the investor is not going to buy it and they want a higher return at a lower risk. Well, yeah, of course. Um, so I don't know if you've, if that mm-hmm. ever came mm-hmm. up in the discussions, if you've got any knee jerk reaction to those things. Yeah. Well, in the film, I mean, Caroline Mason said she's the, um, She's the ED of the Esme Fairbairn uh, Foundation in the UK and was involved in designing the Peterborough SIB and then investing in it. And I think her foundation has now invested in six or seven social impact bonds. But she says in the film that the the SIB should never be designed with the investor in mind. So she's quite clear about that. And I agree. I mean, I think bringing the investor into the design of the SIB, meaning setting up those targets and determining what the rate of return is going to be, or at least on offer, ultimately they will determine whether they want to invest or not. But I think the package that is presented to them should be determined by government and the nonprofit and also the recipients of the service should be involved in the design of the actual program. But it should be presented as a, you know, a fait accompli. This is, this is what we have for sale. Are you interested? I mean, if you're going to go down the road of social impact bonds. But I think what is interesting about social impact bonds, and I think holds a lot of potential, is the collaboration um, that is possible through the delivery of these services when you have all of these different actors involved you know so if the beneficiaries or the recipients of the service could be there the service providers and by that i don't mean just the eds but actually the frontline workers along with the investors along with government because i think it's when you have that joint development of a program not the design of the sib but the design of the actual program that you start to increase understanding in society, also maybe have new ways of looking at things, um, that you can have real innovation. And honestly, I don't think you need a social impact bond to have that kind of collaboration, but one of the things that social impact bonds does highlight is that. Um, and, and that speaks to breaking down silos as well. And so if there's anything that we can do to further that, then I think those conversations are good where you have all of those actors at the table. Um, and the conversation should be ongoing. I don't think it should be centered around a SIB personally, but, but that's one of the things that SIBs um, could potentially deliver. So I'm going to get your feedback on a couple of things. I mean, uh, one is one might, so I think some of the points that get made are is that you're inserting, I think David McDonald um, mentions it in the, in, um, in the documentary, uh, who's the economist at the Canadian centers for policy alternatives, if I'm quoting that right. Yeah. Um, he his sort of ending point is why why are we inserting all these investors and lawyers and accountants into the equation these are all people that need to get paid who have competing interests you add a lot of potential unintended consequences and so why not just cut out the middlemen and instead fund multifaceted service delivery programs that have evaluation budgets uh, attached to them and it's and and I think that's merit to that especially in the sense of I get the feeling people are looking for a reason to do a sib rather than, oh, a SIB is a good solution to this problem. And so when you do that, you're kind of making the SIB model, trying to fit it because you want to try to test it out. It's new, it's shiny. 
Mm-hmm. So the, I guess the, the cynical view is, hey, it's new, it's shiny, and let's just do this because it's cool and exciting. I, the, to be the more, I guess, charitable view of it is, hey, this is a new model. We're like, yeah, we're not very good at it yet. We're going to have to learn some lessons and we don't have it all figured out. And so to expect a SIB to be efficient, cost effective, to achieve all the results right away, to have best practices all figured out from like, what are we in? I don't know. It's still pretty nascent, especially in um, Canada. You know, it's a little unfair. And so is there merit to the argument of like, let's play with these for a while. There's going to be some really interesting lessons we're going to learn from all of this. And maybe SIBs will find that they, like personally, this is my view is that there are some really interesting lessons that we could learn from this. And maybe as long as we're willing to be honest about like where the evidence leads and that like, Hey, SIBs for the most part are not a viable (laughs) solution for any problem or Hey, in these very narrow circumstances, and here's what those criteria are for when a SIB typically does well and people are sort of clear on those things then great, mm-hmm. but we may learn some lessons and may, we may discover some other opportunity, some other vehicle that's even better. Um, so I, I kind of have some patience for trying them, but I, I'm also aware that like in the meantime, these are like people's lives that are potentially affected by what we are in our yeah. funding as a result of experimenting. So uh, I guess I'm just bringing up a whole laundry list of issues and you can react to whatever you wanted of that. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, those are all very good points. And I and I just want to pick up on what you said at the end, I, how one of the reasons the film follows the lives of people who are dependent on these programs and also, you know, the investors and designers of these social impact bonds is because it is very real, you know, in, in the film, two of the, John, who's the homeless person who's being helped by Mainstay or who's involved in their program as one of their tenants, two of the people that we filmed with, you know, his best friend, Joe, and another gentleman named William, who was a tenant there, have both uh, died since we were filming. So these are very real people um, whose lives were impacting with these programs. So I I think it's important to to note that. I'm really sorry to hear that. But looking at yeah. Yeah. No, uh, Joe had, um, you know, in the film while we were filming, he'd had a stroke and um, he subsequently died of a, another stroke afterward. And the other person, William, was beaten to death. Um, yeah. He, uh, he liked to walk. Um, so he, was, uh, he usually spent most of his days out walking uh, in Toronto and um, I guess came across the wrong people. But... So with that in mind, there is some urgency here. Um, The Canadian government has been studying social finance since 2011. Um, And so they had a steering committee looking at this um, and many different uh, people involved in the space, including Stephen Huddard. And one of the women who's going to be at our panel at the screening discussion we're having in Montreal on November 12th, uh, Professor Marie Bouchard. So, these individuals, I think there were 12 on the steering committee, were asked to come up with direction for the government in pursuing social finance because social impact bonds is just one model in that space. Um, so social purpose companies is another model within the social finance space, which I actually think holds a lot more promise um, than social impact bonds. But when you asked about, you know, why people are driven to this and are they just wanting to experiment with something shiny and new, I would have to say that 
this is really, this agenda is being driven by governments. So around the world, you know, social impact bonds originated because as Sir Ronald Cohen says in the film, you know, I got a call from uh, the prime minister, Cameron, and he wanted me to sort of address this problem about poverty and what could I do about it? So government is looking to private investment and capital to solve these problems everywhere, not just in the UK and Canada, but the United States, Australia, you know, Holland, uh, we're getting a lot of interest in the film from impact investors who are being asked by government to solve these problems. And so I, I don't think that's, that's where I think it's coming from. And I think it's important we acknowledge that. So if we are going to respond to that, um, I think there is going to be some experimentation, but I think we have to, I mean, we have to we have to come up with some very real answers, I would say, in the short term, as opposed to 10 more years down the road. And um, if you want to talk about social enterprise a little bit, the, the McConnell uh, Foundation is doing another, they're calling it a social impact bond, but to me, it fits more in the social enterprise space because they're funding a um, geothermal plant on reserve in, you know about this, in Manitoba. Yeah. It's and um, capital, isn't it? That's right. And I think Community Foundations of Canada may also be involved, maybe even as a payer. Mm -hmm. Don't quote me on that. We can find out November 20th in Montreal if you come to our screening, or you can watch it online because we tape all the discussions. So just give the plug for that. You're, you're, the, yeah. It's November 20th, Montreal at Concordia. Concordia University. The screening yeah. for the film, right? Yeah, and a screening for the film and then a discussion afterward, which will be very interesting because Sarah Lyons uh, from Community Foundations of Canada will be there. Erica uh, Barbosa Vargas will be there from McConnell Foundation. And um, then the woman on the Social Finance Steering Committee that I mentioned, Professor Marie Bouchard, and also Dr. Uh, Marguerite Mandel, who is a um, professor from Concordia in social community and public affairs, who has done a lot of research on SIBs and, and has um, some interesting critiques to offer. So in that discussion, hopefully Sarah and Erica can both talk about this um, geothermal power plant uh, that they're funding or somebody's funding. I don't know exactly who all the funders are. I think Raven Capital and McConnell are two. I think community foundations might be a pair. But what I find interesting about that is that, yes, there will be savings in that, you know, the creation of the energy will be cheaper than what is currently being relied on. But the big benefits of that is that that plant will be owned by the community, so owned by the indigenous members of the reserve. It will provide uh, stable, well-paid employment for the people on the reserve, and it's a renewable energy. So this succeeds in so many ways in terms of social impact that goes way beyond paying an investor if an individual is able to, you know, change their lives in some way um, by getting over a vice like addiction or, you know, grappling with their mental health, which to me should not be monetized. Mm -hmm. Investing in a 
product or a corporation, like this nuclear plant that creates a product that already exists in the market and is necessary. And the offshoot of that is good paying jobs that require education training and are, you know, properly remunerated. And you have a renewable resource that that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. So what, so what this social impact bond becomes and how we experiment with it. Um, and one of the things that uh, Marie Bouchard said to me is that in that steering committee, a lot of the conversation revolved around, can we do it differently in Canada? Can we come up with our own idea of what a social impact bond is and apply it in a way that it fits into the social finance program that makes sense for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think these are the important questions that just that need to be asked when we get sort of carried away with the excitement over this new shiny thing. And, and I, you know, I'm coming from the traditional finance world and I, I, I left that world for a lot of the problems with it. And so, you know, when I come to this space, I, I have a big fear at the back of my mind around it adopting a lot of the bad habits and practices of the pure kind of unfettered capitalist markets. And we've seen all, all sorts of problems with that. So I think these are the conversations that need to be had. I think, you know, this was an issue, a theme that came up, I think, in um, several times in the documentary around, you know, the, the people who are at the tables negotiating the fates of these, uh, into, you know, these potential beneficiaries from these social programs, none of them look or are like the, the people they're, they're helping. And so we've, we have the people who stand to benefit from this not don't have a seat at the table. They're not involved in most of these discussions, and that's highly problematic. That also is what I think really appealed to me about the um, social enterprise bond structure you're talking about with um, Ravens Capital and the renewable um, energy, and is that the community is a big part of that whole process and is responsible for um, kind of implementation and management of it. I, I don't have all of the details on it, but I, you know, I know that it's an in- integral part of that that model, and that feels to me right. It feels to me necessary. Um, it's also even even something is uh, like the very fact that impact investing, whether that's through a SIB or whatever other impact investment options exist right now in the world and in Canada in particular, most of them are only available to accredited investors. So the wealthiest Canadians can get access. That just feels very much against the whole spirit of what this all is, um, if, mm-hmm. if that's going to be the case. And I understand why it happens, but I think we do have to ask ourselves these questions. Um, and as a white privileged male, I, I'm guilty of this oftentimes. It's like, oh, right, we'll just sit around the table and never mind the fact that, you know, not all the stakeholders are represented at this table because we, you know, this is exciting and interesting for us and cool, but this has real world mm-hmm. implications on real world people's lives. Um, and so being reminded of that, I think through the documentary and the, the issues you're raising, I think are really, really healthy. I mean, in terms of having, um, you know, recipients or people involved in the programs um, at the table, if you want to know what success looks like for John, he's the best person to ask or what success looks like for Reginald. And the problem with SIBs, at least the way they're structured now, is this idea that the metrics, the payment triggers, have to be very black and white because both investors and government have been pushing in that direction because government doesn't want to feel like it overpays. They want to make sure that when there's a payment trigger, 
It's for real results that can be easily quantified and investors feel the same. And so what gets lost in that whole transaction is a lot of the very real benefits that people in programs feel because they feel their quality of life has improved. But try to get that into an evaluation metric for a SIB, it's very difficult. But if you sit down and talk to John, a tenant at Mainstay, about what success looks like for him, and then you go down the hallway and talk to someone like William, it's going to be very different because we're dealing with individuals. We're not, this is not, you know, widgets. So mm-hmm. it's the, the evaluation metrics, and this is something that Caroline Mason again brings up in the film, and so does Mildred Warner, a professor from Cornell who appears in the film. Evaluation for something like, you know, quality of life, it has to be very nuanced. And maybe that doesn't lend itself well to the financialization of the delivery of a social program. Yeah, they were two of my favorite um, commentators, uh, interviews in that, uh, in the entire documentary. I really, I thought they were, um, yeah, really asking very, very valid questions that, that again, need to be, uh, need to be addressed. You know, even it made me think a little bit about, and these are maybe different, subtle, different takes on stuff we've already been talking about, but like, so what types of stuff gets funded then when the ability to quantify the metrics easily becomes a primary concern of how you and what you fund. And so now we start to move away from, and I can't remember who mentions it in the documentary, move, move away from things that need funding to the things that are easier to fund because they are quantifiable and we've got more data and metrics and we move away from innovation because we stick to the tried and true. And so um, that, that sort of came up as a, as a, real meaningful issue I think that we need to grapple with 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 SIBs and I think just generally when we start tying whether it's a SIB or there's all those sort of offshoots of SIBs that rely on a similar like payment for success type of metric Um, and when that happens what what implications does that have so the other thing that I bring up as a concern that I started to think about as I watched this documentary um, and this may sound a little melodramatic but is if the money amount of money that's involved in these SIBs and the return kind of potential is, is high enough, I, I'd really genuinely start to worry about the pressures or the, the, the risks to the individuals who are you know, doing the impact measurement. I mean, if there's enough money on the table, who's to say that the, you know, the people doing the measurement of these programs, which is then ultimately determining the payoff to the investors, aren't being pressured, threatened. Um, you know, I think we saw examples of, I think we've seen lots of examples uh, through time uh, of this, but like in, in microfinance, I had, you know, had this, I think struggled with this issue where it became, there was this whole boon around, you know, small loans to the poor because we found models that allowed us to reduce the risk of doing that. And all of a sudden it went from, you know, only nonprofits who were doing it to for-profits who entered that market and really aggressive loan recollection practices and you had borrowers committing suicide because of the pressure to pay back, you know, loans that were foisted upon them. And so I'd be very worried about, again, the, some of these bad habits we take from when you bring a for-profit mindset to vulnerable people. 
Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of pressuring evaluators, that's already alleged to have happened. Mm. So in a social impact bond that was meant to reduce the number of gang-involved youth ending up in the justice system, it took place in Boston. The nonprofit was Roca, and Goldman Sachs was alleged to have been calling one of the service delivery uh, workers and um, pressuring them to change some of their uh, results that they were reporting. And that was written by um, the person apparently who received the calls in a, in a publication called Truth Out. And I tried to get him to speak in the film, but um, he wouldn't return any of my calls. So who knows what happened to him after he published that. Mm. But um, I, mm-hmm. I think the concern you raise is very real. Oh man! I mean, because we could be speaking about a lot of money, right? Um, yeah, eh, that's why that's that's scary. Um, uh, so I'm just trying to think about. I mean, I, I may start to sort of tie a thread through through all this, but I, I guess I'm I'm curious. What's your? How are you left feeling about? I, I got a. I think I've gotten a strong sense of your sort of feeling on Sibs in general, but maybe your how you're left feeling about Sibs, and then more broadly the the sort of social finance space in general, the, where purpose and profit meet. Mm-hmm. I I'm less hopeful about social impact bonds as they were originally designed and promoted. Um, I am encouraged, still encouraged about the social finance space because I think there are a lot of people out there and not just really wealthy investors who have millions of dollars to put toward programs, but I think there's a lot of individuals, uh, citizens who want to invest their money in, um, in things that have or generate good social benefits. And so that I am encouraged by. And I like the fact that the conversations are happening, you know, these steering committees, um, that they're bringing in people from all walks of life, from academia to labor organizations to nonprofits um, to institutional investors. And so I think that is promising. Um, but honestly, I... I think there, there, it doesn't have to be that complicated. And as you were saying earlier, people like shiny new things. But what if we were just to invest in, first of all, identify and value companies that had fair labor practices, you know, that allowed for paternal leave, that had equal employment uh, for men and women in terms of uh, salary, that had culturally diverse workforces and leadership, Um, if we could, because these are the things that create healthy families and therefore healthy communities. You know, it's a chance for people to spend time with their kids, to be more involved with their kids' lives, with their schools, with their communities, civic engagement. All of these things, when people have their basic needs taken care of, that's when a lot of these problems that we're seeing that social impact bonds try to address, that's how you avoid those problems. Because as Mildred, again, um, said in the end of the film, she had some great lines, but you know, most of these problems stem from poverty. Mm. 
And so if that's what we need to address, we have to look at wealth inequality and how we distribute wealth and making sure that people's basic needs are taken care of. And corporations, private investors have a big role to play in that. And so if people are looking for somewhere to invest their money that's going to have these positive benefits, that's an easy place to go. Hmm. Yeah. It yeah, almost I, sounds too simple, but <laughs> maybe it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. You were talking about this and it made me think, how many times have you seen the film now? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> a million? <laughs> Well, if you consider, I mean, we were editing for over a year. So if you consider how much time you spend in the edit suite, um, but watching the finished film with an audience, I would say maybe a dozen times. So not, not that Okay. Much. Yeah. Um, and I but guess I just... Do know, I do know it by heart. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 believe, I believe it. I can tell. How, how's the reaction been to the film? I just want to end around there. Like, since since you've been sort of sharing it and screening it, what are the sort of things that strike you in terms of like? Is it advanced the conversation the way you'd hoped? Is it surfacing issues the way you'd hoped? What's been I think, the reaction? Yeah. So that I think the two biggest things for me that I'm most uh, pleased with is one that it's raised general public awareness mm-hmm. because until the film was released, I don't think very few people have heard of social impact bonds, much less understood them. So even in the press that had existed uh, before the film, as you said at the beginning of our discussion, it's very hard for people to wrap their head around this. So the film has animations, it has concrete examples, you meet people going through the design process. So I think in that way, the film has really raised public awareness and understanding of social impact bonds as they fit into the social finance uh, framework. So that I think is great. Um, And then the other thing that I'm really pleased about is that the film has gotten a lot of interest from impact investors internationally. So not just in Canada where we've been doing these screenings, but we've received requests from, you know, the UK, from the Netherlands, Belgium, uh, Colombia, Singapore, just, all over the place of people like yourself who are involved in impact investing and um, they want to know how to do it right. And they want to avoid mistakes that have already been made or at least be aware of the pitfalls so they can try and design whatever social impact uh, program or project they're working on, design it for maximum effect. And I think that's fantastic. So, you know, I hope the film can do a service in that way um, in furthering the conversation and the practice um, and where we take social finance over the next several years. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, for what it's worth, my, my opinion is that this, this film definitely very meaningfully contributes to that discussion, our understanding of SIBs in particular and the, you know, contributes to the social finance um, space. I, I love that you, um, you know, took a hard look at the real issues um, surrounding these because folks in the space, including myself, can get, you know, carried away with, um, you know, excitement around something new. And, and so it's a very healthy um, discussions. I, I saw it for the first time as part of a, 
um, in a small group setting where we actually, you know, as a group discussed afterwards what, you know, kind of did a mini screening and had a discussion with others in the space around, you know, around this. And so it was a very tangible example of, you know, sparking and creating conversation. So um, thank you very much for doing it. That's some, that is so satisfying to hear that. Thanks for sharing that, David. It was actually just for, as a, as a background it was with a friend of yours, Andrea Nempton. Um, the fellow so, producer. I used to work yeah. with Andrea when she was in the filmmaking space. We made uh, inside disaster, a documentary about humanitarian response in Haiti after the earthquake. Oh, I didn't know that Andrea was a part of that with you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Andrea wow. was, yeah, she was um, a co-producer with me and producer on the project. So, Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Very good friend. Yeah. I've only gotten to know Andrea just uh, recently, but uh, she seems wonderful and doing great work. And uh, so she, you can credit her for my um, uh, exposure to the film. Oh, thank her. That's <laughs> great. Great to hear. Yeah. Well, listen, well, with that, I'll just maybe state for everybody who wants to see the um, documentary, it's going to be it's going to be up on uh, TVO, isn't it? In, yeah, um, TVO website. January? Yeah. January 22nd, it airs at 9 p.m. Right. Um, and then it repeats again on January 26th and 27th, but it will be online on the TVO website. Sorry, it will be online on the TVO website starting on January 22nd. January 22nd. Okay. And we'll, um, I'll put that on the show notes uh, for the podcast. And uh, once, if and when there's a link, um, I'll, I'll, I'll put that up on the show notes as well for anybody who's uh, looking afterwards. Um, I'm excited for the launch and I uh, can't wait to see how it all goes. And uh, congratulations. Fantastic. Thank you, David. Thanks so much, Nadine. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast. Here's to the Impact Investing Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.